The following is presented by the Center for Political Innovation, CPI, Building American Socialism for the 21st Century. To learn more, visit cpiusa.org. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. I'm here in my lovely Brooklyn apartment, and we're going to have yet another one of our lovely evening chats. Uh, so glad you're here. Uh, glad we're going to have a conversation. Uh, the way this works is I give my opening remarks, and then from there, uh, I do the roll call where I call you out as I see you, names and locations. And then from there, after that, uh, I just answer your super chat questions, and then we're done. Um, and then we're done. So that's the fun part. So, uh, you know, keep the super chats rolling in. I'll be writing them down. Um, I'll be writing them down. So be sure to just send your super chats, and I'll write them down. It looks like pretty soon we're going to be on Twitch. I set up a Twitch channel. Um, I'm not sure I have everything in place. I believe I might need to like monetize it or something. I'm trying to figure that out. But I found out with StreamYard, with the StreamYard app, I can stream here on YouTube, on Facebook, and on Twitch all at the same time. So I think that's how we're going to do things from here forward. Um, I think that's how we're going to do it. I just need to make sure I, I have Twitch all you know, all set up. So that's how we're going to do it. Um, I think that'll expand our audience. Um, I always get a little worried because when I use StreamYard, for some reason, not as many people watch these streams. The numbers are lower. So I want to make sure that doesn't happen. I, I, you know, and that for some reason, uh, but it would be better to be on Facebook and on Twitch all at the same time. I think it would be generally a better thing to do. Um, and I'm getting pretty used to using StreamYard. I think I have to use my computer webcam rather than my um, my webcam on here. But I think you can use you can use StreamYard on your phone. So if that's the case, it shouldn't really be a problem. Uh, so there you go. Um, welcome everybody. Hit the like button. Hit the subscribe button. Hit the notifications bell. I'll jump right into my opening remarks, uh, and then from there we can go. Folks, uh, a lot of people have a have this this gut level reaction that if you ever mention the CIA, they immediately think tinfoil hat. They immediately roll their eyes. Um, they just roll their eyes and say, "Oh boy, one of those cuckoo CIA." You know, "Oh boy, oh boy," right? Michael Hudson. Yeah, you know, um, and they just kind of roll their eyes. Uh, the thing is that there's a lot there. There's a lot there with the CIA. Um, and if you really want to understand how U.S. society works, and especially if you really want to understand politics over the last few decades, over the last, really since the end of the Second World War when the CIA was created, you really, you really ought to take the CIA kind of thing more seriously because there's a lot there. There is a lot there. Um, and, uh, you know, a great example Great example. Now, there's just been a release of what they call the Pandora Papers. I don't know if people saw this, but all kinds of files have been handed over to the media. The Pandora Papers. Right? This is, and it's a follow-up to the Panama Papers. And it's the Pandora Papers, all this information revealing the overseas assets of various figures from around the world. Uh, revealing their overseas assets. Um, 
And many people have looked at the Pandora Papers and thought, hmm, why is the United States not in here? Uh, they've looked at what's already been released, and there's still quite a bit to be released from these Pandora Papers. They've said, that's funny. Why is the United States not here? The USA is widely known to be a tax haven. Right? I mean, it's widely known to be a tax haven. Jeff Bezos barely paid any taxes. Elon Musk barely paid any taxes. All kinds of American billionaires pay very low taxes. Donald Trump paid a very low tax rate. But for some reason, uh, if you look at these Pandora Papers, a follow-up to the Panama Papers that are exposing various political leaders around the world, um, you know, the assets of U.S. billionaires overseas are largely absent from it. There's a couple low-level, unheard-of U.S. billionaires who got, you know, thrown into the mix. But as far as the big, you know, tech elite, Bill Gates, uh, Jeff Bezos... George Soros, those people are not in the Pandora Papers. And you have to wonder why that is. Why is that? Well, think about it. You know, the point of the Pandora Papers is to, quote-unquote, expose corruption. It's to expose, quote-unquote, corruption around the world. Um, and for some reason, it's not exposing corruption very much in a certain country that country being the United States. Um, meanwhile, uh, The Guardian, when they did their report on the first dump, they featured a picture of Russian President Vladimir Putin in the report on it. Russian President Vladimir Putin is not mentioned anywhere in these Pandora papers so far. He's not mentioned. There are various Russian figures in the, uh, in the Pandora papers, but Russian President uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin is not mentioned, but yet in the news report that came out about the Pandora Papers, the Guardian made a point of putting a picture of the Russian president. Now, don't be naive. Don't think this came out of nowhere. Don't think this came out of nowhere. Don't be naive. Um, right now, for those of you who may not have seen, a number of officials from the CIA have off the record come forward and said that Mike Pompeo, former Secretary of State, also former CIA director, in 2017 had conferences discussing all kinds of plans to assassinate or kidnap Julian Assange. Imagine that, right? You know, Julian Assange is a journalist, was hauled up in the Ecuadorian embassy, and the U.S. Secretary of State and CIA director was sitting down talking about assassinating Julian Assange. Now, the thing is, the thing is, if you're familiar with this, the history of the CIA and what's been published, that wouldn't be shocking to you at all that they might engage in this kind of behavior. Um, but if you're a normal average American, uh, the way we've been trained to think is that the second anyone says CIA, we just go, oh boy, and we roll our eyes. Well, no, it is, it is on the record. A number of CIA officials have come forward and said that Mike Pompeo had meetings about how to assassinate Julian Assange. And Mike Pompeo wouldn't deny this. He just said that the people who said it should be prosecuted, that they should be prosecuted for saying it. Um, well, that's something, isn't it? Um, but if you look at the whole history of the United States uh, from, from the end of the Second World War, especially U.S. foreign policy, but U.S. domestic policy in a lot of ways, the three letters, C-I-A, are all over it. Um, 
you know, at, right after the Second World War in France and in Italy and in many countries, the Communist Party, um, you know, uh, uh, Nature, Bob, Ross, Art. In the 1950s, uh, the Communist Party was surging in membership across, across Europe, uh, in Italy and in France and in Belgium, places like that. The communists were very popular because they had been the underground anti-Nazi resistance. In Italy, the communists had led the partisan brigades to fight off the Italian fascists. There's even, you know, people know the song, Ona Mattina. Da, 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 da. Bella ciao, bella ciao, bella ciao, ciao, ciao. The communists of Italy were very loved for their efforts to defeat fascism. In France, it was communists who led La Résistance and fought against the Nazis. And the communists coming out of the Second World War were very well-respected individuals. So they were winning big seats in the elections. So the CIA launched a program called Operation Gladio, designed at meddling in Italy's elections to make sure that the communists uh, did not win. Uh, and they did all kinds of crazy election meddling, all kinds of arming of separatist groups and fascist groups and ultra-leftist groups. And they did all kinds of crazy stuff meddling in the Italian elections to make sure that the communists did not win. This is a historical fact. The Operation Gladio is not controversial. Uh, it's not denied. This is a historical fact. Right? The CIA overthrew the government of Nicaragua Nicaragua, they elected Jacobo Arbenz, uh, who was a progressive, uh, and they, the CIA backed a military coup to overthrow Jacobo Arbenz. Um, you know, the CIA launched the Congress for Cultural Freedom program, funneling money to anti-Soviet leftists. They set up Partisan Review magazine, which was a magazine that purported to be a socialist magazine, but it was actually a CIA-funded magazine to point socialists and anti-imperialists and people that were concerned about civil rights in the direction of supporting U.S. imperialism. Uh, the CIA armed the Tibet separatists. In the mountains of Colorado, there were training camps where the Dalai Lama's brother and all kinds of Tibetans were armed and trained in military operations. They were then airdropped into Tibet. And in the 1950s, there was the Tibet Civil War fomented by the United States against China. And hundreds of thousands of people died as the CIA airdropped people and weapons into the mountains of Tibet. And they would go and they would burn healthcare clinics and they would kill uh, literacy volunteers. And it was, it was a brutal anti-communist insurgency fomented by the CIA. In 1965, in Indonesia, the CIA overthrew the elected president. Uh, and there was a military government that took power in Indonesia in 1965 because the president of Indonesia was sympathetic to the communists and with to China. He was overthrown. And the overthrow of the Indonesian president in 1965 didn't just stop with overthrowing the government. Um, didn't just stop with overthrowing the government. After that, uh, they started exterminating uh, in, in tens of thousands and eventually hundreds of thousands sympathizers with the Communist Party of Indonesia. And it turned from simply a political purge where the CIA was providing the names of, of communists uh, to, the, to the Indonesian military. It turned into a genocide of ethnically Chinese people in Indonesia. At least half a million people were killed in 1965 
in Indonesia with the CIA directing the whole thing, working with the military to overthrow the government of Indonesia and to, you know, and foment a coup that was really ugly and bloodthirsty, the Jakarta method. All right. Um, it was a very, very ugly coup. Um, and in fact, Barack Obama's stepfather was a prominent figure in the, in the, the military, uh, you know, uh, uh, at the time of Indonesia. Barack Obama lived in Indonesia when he was a small child in the aftermath of this coup. Uh, and his mother uh, was married to uh, a leader of the Indonesian military uh, who was carrying this out. Now, you think people would know about this, um, but... You don't, because this has largely been obscured, but this is the history of the CIA. There are many examples of this, right? You can talk about the, you know, the various operations, arming and working with Saudi Arabia to foment a war against Afghanistan. Um, you know, you can talk, uh, another example uh, would be the, uh, the various operations in Central America, uh, where they've worked with drug dealers, um, you know, and, and terrorists to overthrow, you know, the governments and to wage brutal counterinsurgencies. You know, there was a genocide committed in, uh, in Guatemala during the 1980s. There was a military dictator named Rios Montt, and the CIA worked with him to commit genocide against the indigenous population because the indigenous population was sympathetic to communism, because there was a, a, a resistance movement among the indigenous people of Guatemala. The CIA went down and they worked with Rios Montt, the military dictator of Guatemala, to torture people, to exterminate entire villages, to commit war crimes. It was horrendous what was done. Again, you don't know any of the history of this. Another thing, they're, you know, drugs, uh, MK Ultra, Google Project MK Ultra. That is very much the work of the CIA. The fact that drugs became wildly popular and trendy during the 1960s, that was the work of the CIA. You can read about Project MK Ultra and how they began doing experiments on the civilian population, walking around the Bay Area. Um, putting acid in people's drinks just to see what would happen, uh, you know, you know, holding, you know, having, going to houses of prostitution, places that people were not particularly proud to be, and then holding them captive and, and putting them on LSD to see how they would, would act, holding people captive. Uh, you know, uh, the, the activities of the CIA are quite ugly. I mean, read the search for the Manchurian candidate. That is a very good book about the CIA mind control operations. Ah, right. Nicaragua against empire. Uh, you know, and how they tried really hard to uh, make, you know, effective brainwashing and mind control, right? There's a, a book by Stephen Kinzer. Uh, it's called uh, The Poisoner in Chief that talks about the same kind of thing. Um, these kind of things are happening. Um, and the USA does have an intelligence apparatus. And that intelligence apparatus of the United States is full of a lot of very evil people. Uh, and they are very deceptive in how they operate. They are very covert and manipulative. Um, and uh, they engage in all kinds of operations that have taken millions of lives since the Second World War. Uh, they have, they have, you know, they have engaged in all kinds of uh, nefarious activities. They have a huge amount of influence over U.S. culture uh, and media. Um, and you wouldn't know that you wouldn't, you wouldn't know this, uh, if you, if you just, you know, have this mindset where a lot of these people have been trained, a lot of liberals are now trained to do this thought stopping ritual. The second that anyone says CIA, they just shut down. They say, oh, he's one of those. 
He's one of those, and they roll their eyes, and no one talks about it. Well, the CIA is something worth talking about. There is a lot there, right? There would be no 1960s counterculture if it hadn't been for the CIA and their covert efforts to promote drug use, to promote Eastern mysticism and the occult, uh, you know, to to uh, to foment an anti-Stalinist left. I mean, go to the Wikipedia page right now for anti-Stalinist left, and you will read about how the U.S. government and the CIA funded all kinds of things to, you know, all kinds of efforts to build up a quote-unquote anti-Stalinist left. That should make you very suspicious of, of, you know, people that in the name of communism preach anti-communism because there's a whole history of that coming from certain places. Um, there's a whole history of this, um, and, and nobody wants to talk about it. Now, a couple observations, uh, that are worth pointing out. Well, before I go on from there, Silicon Valley, there would be no Silicon Valley if it weren't for the CIA and the NSA, right? Because it was the central intelligence agency of the United States that figured out, uh, that, when it came to the computer revolution, the Soviet Union couldn't afford, it just didn't have the resources to put into keeping up with the United States. The Soviet Union in the 80s, they developed their own home computer system. Um, Italian partisans. You know, they developed their own, their own home computer system. Um, and uh, they, um, they, they, you know, they did a lot to try and promote computers. And there was a NATO treaty uh, that forbid the Soviet Union from getting any technology. It was a treaty that was signed that basically made it so no country in NATO uh, was allowed to give the Soviet Union, uh, you know, you know, computer technology. But they were able in West Germany and in and in the Soviet republics, they were able to, you know, come to a lot of great breakthroughs in computer technology, but they just didn't have the resources and trying to keep up um, you know, and trying to keep up with the arms race, uh, the arms race, uh, they just couldn't, they just didn't have the resources, uh, you know, to, you know, to, to do that. So as a result of that, as a result of not being able to keep up, um, you know, the central intelligence agency of the United States, uh, they went over the top and, and fomenting, getting the funding together to make, Southern California, uh, a center of computer research uh, and make, you know, central Northern California really a center of computer research. And the market wasn't going to make computers, you know, you know, get the cutting edge, but it was largely the thinking of the intelligence apparatus that decided that we really need to, you know, make the United States the leader of, of the computer revolution. And let's remember that the internet really started as a computer as a kind of a computer, um, you know, the, the internet really started as a computer system uh, for information sharing for the military. People talk about DARPA, or I think DARPAnet, or I forget what the name of it is, DARPAnet, something like that. It was largely for the U.S. military, um, you know. Um, so that's something to keep in mind as well. Um, you know, you may think that, that you know, this hasn't a uh, defense program, ARPANET. Yeah. You may think that the CIA is just this, you know, this group that, uh, that, you know, anyone who talks about it is crazy and insane, but no, this is a really big deal in global history. It's a really big deal in U.S. history. Our culture in the United States has been greatly shaped by this institution. 
Uh, the world's history has been largely shaped by it. I mean, my, the fall of the Soviet Union, for goodness sakes. Who do you think was pumping money to the NGOs and the various activist groups? Who do you think was cultivating leaders of the Soviet Communist Party, like the Gorbachev wing, and getting them to, to the place where they did what they did and threw in the towel and surrendered the Soviet Union? I mean, I mean, there is a huge, huge amount of covert efforts by the United States. And and it is a shame to see this, this kind of thought-stopping ritual that people have developed uh, where they just don't want to talk about it. But that shouldn't be really surprising. It really shouldn't be surprising because this is, this is how CIA brainwashing works, right? When you brainwash somebody, you just train them to stop thinking at a certain point, right? You just train them at certain ideas are off limits. Um, you know, I see people reading my BreadTube book online and I'll use a certain word and they'll go, oh, that's an alt-right word. How is it an alt-right word? You know, I'll say at the Silicon Valley, they said, Silicon Valley, that's a right-wing thing. No, it's not, but that's how they've been trained. Now, the second anyone says CIA, the second anyone says Silicon Valley, turn your mind off. This is brainwashing. This is brainwashing. Um, it's kind of interesting that, you know, Indiana, the state of Indiana, uh, is really not that big of a state in terms of population. Uh, it's a smaller U.S. state. It's in the Midwest. Um, it's in the Midwest. It's a smaller U.S. state. But uh, it is very important to U.S. intelligence work. Uh, Philip Agee uh, and other you know, CIA whistleblowers have talked about how Notre Dame University, uh, which is located in northern Indiana, near Chicago, in the, you know, the northern part of Indiana that's considered part of the Chicago metropolitan area, northern Indiana is a very important center of U.S. intelligence work, um, very important center. And we shouldn't be surprised that right now, especially when there's a political crisis in the United States, we're seeing an overrepresentation of Indiana uh, in the federal government. Pete Buttigieg. Uh, you know, the mayor of a very small town compared to, you know, it's not a major city at all. South Bend, Indiana was a major contender in the presidency of the United States. Well, Pete Buttigieg, uh, uh, this U.S. Supreme Court justice, Amy Coney Barrett. Again, she's a U.S. Supreme Court justice. And she was, you know, she's somebody from Indiana, South Bend, Indiana, no less. Um, you know, you look Mike Pence. What was he before he was the vice president? He was the governor of Indiana. Uh, well, Indiana, Indiana is a hub of CIA activity, and in particular, it is the neocon wing of the CIA. Um, and there are different factions within the CIA, and that's one thing you have to talk about, right? Um, you know, and the Southern California, uh, you know, or I, I shouldn't say Southern California, but the California CIA, right? The Stanford Research Institute, uh, that, that is one hub of CIA activity, and that's where you get Project MKUltra, and that's where you get Silicon Valley, and that's where you get the hippie counterculture stuff. You can trace that back to, back to the Northern California wing of the CIA, and that is what you can call the liberal CIA. Uh, the neocon CIA, uh, one center of its activities is Indiana. Um, and, and you can go for many decades and see this, right? So you, I mean, it's like, it's like, it's, you know, if there's, if there's activity from the liberal CIA, if there's a major project from the liberal CIA, uh, you're going to see it happen in Northern California, the Bay area, Palo Alto, you know, Stanford, that's where you're going to see it. If there's a project from the right wing CIA, the neocon CIA, you're going to see it out of Indiana. Um, and, and this, this works very well. This rule that I've just laid out here works extremely well. Um, 
Indiana, great, great example of, of Indiana activity. Um, you know, for many years, the biggest church in the world during the 1980s was in Indiana. The biggest church in the entire world. More, more people attended church on Sunday morning at a church called the Hammond Baptist Church in Indiana. It was the biggest church in the entire world. And it was headed by Reverend Jack Hiles. And it was an independent fundamental Baptist church. And uh, it was heavily involved in the Contra War in Nicaragua. And it was built up to be the biggest church in the world. They would have three services, 20,000 people at one, 20,000 people at the next one, 20,000 people at the next one. The biggest church in the world, uh, they had Hiles Anderson College, which was a college, and thousands of, of folks from Nicaragua and El Salvador and Guatemala, uh, you know, came to the United States, attended Hammond Baptist Church, cooperated with Hammond Baptist Church. It was a big part of the Contra War in Nicaragua. Um, all right, Steve Bannon. It was a big part of the Contra War in Nicaragua. It was this Hammond Baptist Church. And Reverend Jack Hiles, who was the leader of it, um, you know, he had, you know, there were certainly some scandals that came out with him. And he, you know, he's been largely criticized, but he was a CIA asset and he was based out of Indiana. Now, what's also interesting, now Pete Buttigieg, he's out of, he was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana. He's gay, but he makes a big point of being, you know, gay, but also Episcopalian. Um, Pete Buttigieg's father is the leading scholar on Antonio Gramsci, right? And so many people will say that Pete Buttigieg is a communist. He's a communist. His father's a communist. No, 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 no. Antonio Gramsci, you must remember, is a favorite of the Congress for Cultural Freedom and the Frankfurt School and CIA efforts to push Marxist and Marxist academics away from Soviet communism, right? And Pete Buttigieg's father, as the, the founder and leader of the International Gramsci Society, was very key in trying to push, push the global Marxist movement in an anti-communist direction. I mean, that was a that was a central part of their operation. The Frankfurt School, Partisan Review Magazine, Dermonat Magazine, Herbert Marcuse, Encounter Magazine from the, the UK, Paris Review. You don't have to take my word for it. Read the Cultural Cold War. Read Fink's How the CIA Tricked the World's Greatest Writers by Joel Whitney. There's 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 a lot written about this. Um, Amy Coney Barrett. Right now, she's on the U.S. Supreme Court, and uh, it came out that you know during her hearings she referred to her own religion as being Roman Catholic. However, we now know uh, that she's not just Roman Catholic; she's the leader of a Pentecostal parachurch organization that has infiltrated the Catholic Church in Indiana. It's called People of Praise. And uh, she speaks in tongues, uh, and uh, they believe evil spirits control people's bodies, and they basically don't agree with Roman Catholic teachings. But look up the fact that People of Praise, uh, this religious parachurch organization that engages in all kinds of mystical practices and, and, and all of this, um, you know, uh, People of Praise is based out of Indiana. Um, you know, Indiana, again, Indiana is not a very big state, but it's very overrepresented uh, in the U.S. Uh, political process right now because it is a, it's a hub of the neocon CIA. Philip Agee uh, made a point of saying that Notre Dame University was one of the top recruiting places for CIA officers. Um, 
Indiana is a very important place for the neocon CIA. Uh, meanwhile, where was ground zero for MKUltra? That was Haight-Ashbury, San Francisco, the Bay Area. That's where MKUltra was happening. Operation Midnight Climax. They were, you know, putting acid in people's drinks. Um, on top of that, um, same time, where where was the CIA's psychic program? Uh, where they were, you know, researching and paying all kinds of people to be psychics and all of that. That was done out of the Stanford Research Institute at Stanford University. Uh, where was it uh, that that eventually became the center of the computer revolution, which was a project of the liberal CIA? Well, that would be uh, that would be Northern California, Palo Alto, Silicon Valley. And the more you look into this stuff, uh, the more you see liberal CIA is California. And, you know, conservative or neocon CIA is Indiana. You know, George Herbert Walker Bush was CIA director for many years. Um, and you'll notice that, um, you know, Mike Pompeo, uh, he was CIA, dire CIA director. Um, and he was replaced when he moved on to be secretary of state. He was replaced by Gina Haspel. Uh, and Gina Haspel uh, was, was, it was leaked that she was what they called the torture lady, uh, that she believed in torture. Um, and uh, had had a record of being pro-torture. And it was the Bush administration that was pro-torture, right? Many in the CIA feel that that hurts the image of the United States to engage in torture. It, it doesn't help the image of the United States. But there was a faction, especially after 9-11, that felt like it was in the interest of the United States to have the reputation as a country that would torture people. And so, you know, you had the Bush administration, you had John Ashcroft, you had the legal scholar out of Berkeley, John Yu, um, and you had you had Gina Haspel uh, that pushing the idea that torture was a good thing. Um, that was one faction of the CIA that met many of the CIA folks were against. Um, and Mike Pompeo uh, seems to have been in with that faction along with the Bush folks. So now that Mike Pompeo is out of, of government at this point, right, he's not CIA director anymore, he's not secretary of state, some of his colleagues have gone anonymously to the press and exposed his plot to kill Julian Assange. Um, wow. Okay. So, you know, Mike Pompeo, uh, you know, was plotting to kill Julian Assange. Now it gets even more interesting. Mike Pompeo Mike Pompeo is a former Roman Catholic uh, who has become an evangelical. And Mike Pence is a former Roman Catholic who has become an evangelical. Amy Coney Barrett is nominally Roman Catholic, but is actually part of this parachurch evangelical Pentecostal organization called People of Praise. And again, uh, what was going on in the 1980s uh, in Indiana, right? Northern Indiana is a very Roman Catholic area. Um, you know, Southern Indiana, you have more, you know, Baptists and evangelicals and such, but Northern Indiana... It's largely Roman Catholics. Notre Dame University, one of the biggest Catholic universities in the country. And the Catholic Church was not sympathetic to U.S. foreign policy in Central America uh, during the 1980s, right? In Nicaragua, in El Salvador, a lot of the U.S.-aligned contra forces were killing priests and nuns. Uh, the Vatican was calling for the United States to stop arming uh, the anti-communist fanatics of Central America. There were Catholic priests that served in the Nicaraguan government. There were Catholic priests uh, that were associated with the revolutionary movements in El Salvador. And so there was an effort to infiltrate the Catholic Church and win Roman Catholics away from the church and toward, uh, toward Pentecostalism or towards 
you know, religious views that would get them to support U.S. foreign policy in Central America. And it appears that Mike Pence uh, and Amy Coney Barrett and and on top of that, Mike Pompeo are all a product of that effort, right? The fact that the Roman Catholic Church was not in line with U.S. foreign policy in Central America, that you had organizations like People of Praise that were formed. Uh, you had um, you had uh, you know you know efforts to win Catholics away from from you know Catholicism. Mike Pence, uh, he says he had his he had his born again experience uh, at a certain age, but he remained a Roman Catholic for many years. Now he's officially a member of an evangelical church. Church. <laughs> Don't ask me about that, Chase. Don't ask me. That's your answer. Um, but uh, but. But um, but but this these are these are covert efforts that are going on, right? And there are differences within our ruling class. You know, the Bush family, um, you know, the Bush wing of of the CIA, they're much more neocon aligned, much more pro Pentagon. Whereas the California CIA, uh, the liberal CIA, you can call them, they're more focused on mind control. They're more focused on winning without war. They're more focused on controlling the media narrative, controlling technology. Um, and, you know, I mean, it's the California CIA that brought us, you know, social social media. You can be sure of that. Uh, you know, I mean, there would be no social media without their efforts to, to cultivate it. Again, we're seeing a lot of these instances where, uh, you know, we're led to believe the free market is creating all kinds of innovations. But if it wasn't for these, you know, these managers uh, in the intelligence apparatus, do you think Facebook would have blown up the way it did? Uh, do you think that, uh, you know, think Twitter would have blown up the way it did without the approval of folks in the intelligence apparatus uh, uh, who, who worked on all of this? I, I'm just telling you folks. So, you know, again, you know, uh, you know, and the thing is, they're very good at creating what I like to call a light switch effect. And the light switch effect is this. You believe everything the mainstream media says, or you go into Looney Tunes land. It's brilliant. It's a brilliant, brilliant way of doing things, right? It's like, oh, you know, the U.S. government never interferes in other people's countries and just wants to keep us safe from the terrorists and capitalism is the greatest system. And you start to criticize that. And it's like, oh, oh, lizard people, lizard people, psychics, Illuminati, space aliens, Alex Jones, vaccine, you know, confusion. Oh, oh you're great. They want to create that light switch effect. That's very brilliant by creating that either or, by either believe exactly what you are told or enter the twilight zone. Uh, that's a way of shutting things down. If you read, uh, you know, they talk about... Um, they talk about Cass Sunstein, who wrote about cognitive infiltration of the conspiracy communities. And this is a very effective thing, you know, a very effective way of doing things. You create that light switch, you know, are you you believing everything mainstream media says? Oh, you're not? Okay, you're in Looney Tunes land. Very, very effective. But, you know, at the time of the church committee in the late 70s, all kinds of things were revealed about the COINTELPRO program of the FBI, about CIA coups about Project MKUltra and CIA attempts at mind control. And, and all of this stuff was a matter of public record at one time. Uh, it was in the mainstream press. There were congressional hearings about it. Um, th there, was no, um, there was no secrecy about it. I mean, I mean it was, these were secret things that were revealed. You weren't a crazy person if you admitted that they existed. Um, but now they, they have successfully, in order to control the narrative, created this situation where, oh, you believe in any of this or you acknowledge that any of this exists, then you're crazy. Well, you're not crazy, right? And when you look at things like the Pandora Papers, um, when you look at things you know, like this attempt to kill 
this plot to assassinate Julian Assange, or at least kidnap him, um, we should be aware that the intelligence apparatus is working behind the scenes. The USA is not a free and open society. There is what um, what I think uh, uh, Bill Moyers, he called the secret government um, that engages in covert operations, that tries to silence the voice of critics of US foreign policy and destroy their reputations, uh, that tries to manipulate the narrative, that tries to destabilize countries and over overthrow governments, that works with criminal organizations, with drug gangs, uh, with organized crime, uh, these these forces exist, uh, and you can't deny that they exist. Go read the CIA's greatest hits. That's a book that goes over some of this stuff. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, this this stuff is not secret at all. Uh, it's not it's not something that uh, that that is, is really disputed. Um, but if you tell average Americans about it, they go, "Oh, that's crazy. That's tinfoil hat. That's conspiracy stuff." Well, that's the effect of of brainwashing and and mind control over the U.S. public, but. I just wanted to talk about that. I wanted to get that narrative out there. Um, I wanted to, to get that narrative out there. Um, and uh, I guess, um, I mean, that's really all I wanted to say. Um, but I, I mean, I mean, yeah, I, I guess that'll do for my opening remarks, not really long opening remarks tonight. But I just I just felt like talking about the CIA because you shouldn't have this, this trigger reaction anytime anyone says CIA. You shouldn't have that triggered reaction because it's a very real institution that has had a huge impact on U.S. society, and it's very negative. It's done a lot of evil things over the years. Evil, evil things have been done by the CIA over the years, and we can talk about it. Let's talk about it, right? We're constantly being told to be afraid of, quote-unquote, foreign actors and all of that. Let's talk about the CIA. It's not a secret at all. It is not a secret at all. And let's talk about it. And let's let's change this line that says we're not allowed to um, to discuss it. Um, um, why is so little written on Operation Gladium? All right. So there you go. So there you go, folks. Uh, so that's just I just wanted to get that out of my out of my system. Uh, default on debt, right? All right, so there you go, folks. Uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button, hit the notifications bell. Um, and uh, next, I'll do the roll call. I will call you out as I see you, names and locations, names and locations. I will call you out as I see you, who's with us tonight, names and locations. Um, and then after that, I'll answer your super chat questions. That'll be our stream. Kendall in San Diego, Cleveland Pirate Alex, Brazora County, Texas, Arturo in Alaska, Leipzig, East Germany, Emma from Ontario, Canada, Utah, Olympia Logic, Hawaii, Robert from Hawaii, President Jesus, Olympia Logic, Mindanao to Midwest, Houston, Texas, Michigan, uh, Steve in Los Angeles, OP Florida, Sam in Chicago, JT24 in Mississippi, San Miguel, Viende Mexico, Las Vegas, Tony in Tasmania, KCMO, Kansas City, Missouri. Anok, Australia. Great opener, says Kinky. You're very welcome, Kinky. Frank from Baltimore. Zach B. from Richmond, Virginia. Florida. Auckland, New Zealand. Brazoria, U. G'day from Australia. G'day, mate. St. David's, Bermuda. Chad in Kansas City, Kansas. Montreal, Canada. Marlin in San Diego. Cincinnati, Ohio. Paris, France. Rees from Adelaide, Australia. Um, right? Capitalism's Invisible Army. 
Tulare, California, Meredith Wilson, Meredith and Quinn in Eatonville, West Virginia. Shout out to you. Ben in Denver. Shaman in Kitchener, Ontario. Vinicius from Brazil. Enid, okay, uh, Oklahoma. Northern California, Jeff in Michigan, Northern Michigan, Chris in Philly, Matt in New York, Jason Calhoun in Georgia. I've been in Tulare for a rave, Miami, Florida, Charlotte, Vermont, Auckland, New Zealand. Um, uh, Aw, he skipped mine. Uh, Dan in Quebec, Caden and Chloe from Utah, Steve, Southwest Michigan, Hellscape, USA, Kansas City, Missouri. Um, High on the Plains, Nate in Chicago, Calgary, Canada, Edinburgh, Scotland, Joe Gale in Nassau. Shout out to you, Joe Gale. Great to have a stream on my way to work. Enjoy yourself, Joe. Best wishes to you. Good friend of the program there. Ottawa, Ontario, Edmonton, Alberta, UP of Michigan, Amsterdam right here. Nassau County, Char Char, darling. Shout out to you. Holly Horn in Queens, Fort Lauderdale, Jose Gonzalez from Caracas, Venezuela, uh, love and solidarity from Massachusetts. Great stuff, folks. Great stuff. Great stuff. So glad to have you all here. So the first super chat, and I'll just keep writing them down. So if you want to keep the super chats rolling in, um, uh, Naples, Florida, Harold Sullivan, uh, Gabby Hernandez uh, says, hello, Naples, Florida, Harold Sullivan. Um, yeah. Um, Newcastle. All righty. All right. So the first super chat I've got here question is about Michael Hudson. Michael Hudson is a Marxist economist. Um, I believe, uh, you know, he, he comes from a, a, a prominent Trotskyite family. Um, I'm, if I'm not mistaken, I think Trotsky was his godfather or something like that. Um, he comes from like a prominent Marxist family, but he's an economist. He's like a Marxist economist. Um, he talks a lot about debt. Uh, he talks a lot about overproduction and the falling rate of profits. Um, and he's widely respected around the world. Uh, his work is studied in China uh, very much. They study his work in China. Um, he's a he's an uh, Cabo Verde loves you, says Camillo. Oh, that's that's great. I'm really glad they love me in Cabo Verde. Um, you know, Alex Saab. I'll, I'll write Alex Saab. I think I'll, I'll write that down, Alex Saab. Uh, but, uh, but there you go. Michael Hudson. Um, yeah. Michael Hudson is a very important Marxist uh, economist, intellectual. Uh, he's written a number of books. You know, you can learn from watching his interviews and works. Um, so um, they asked me about abstract art. What about nature, Bob Ross art? Well, look, um, I think there's nothing wrong with admiring natural beauty. Um, natural beauty is all around us. My favorite symphony of, of Beethoven is the Pastoral Symphony. Uh, which is mainly him admiring natural beauty. Um, you know, he has a thunderstorm in it. He has like kind of a peaceful, a peaceful afternoon, settler in modern America, peaceful afternoon. Uh, and then he has the shepherd song, which is in honor of the peasantry, settler defined. Um, you know, and so I think there's a lot of great art uh, that can be inspired by, uh, by nature. Um, I don't have an objection to that per se. I will say, you know, when when you're viewing human beings as bad, when you're viewing human beings as negative, um, that could be a problem. Uh, by far, that could be a problem. But um, but yeah, I, I don't I don't object to that kind of art. I mean, people have always made landscapes and and art celebrating nature. I don't I don't see that as wrong. Admiring natural beauty and trying to imitate natural beauty is a good thing, as long as you. Again, don't see human beings as bad as long as you're you're you know not opposing city building. Um, there's nothing wrong with studying nature um, and celebrating it in your art. And some of the greatest art does that. Um, 
you know, I, I mean, all art is saying something. Pandora Papers, right? I, I talked about it, but all right. Um, uh, all right. Okay. China and Vietnam Communist Parties. I know. Um, communist parties. Those are good questions. Um, the Jakarta Method. I haven't read that book. Is that about the Indonesian coup of 1965? Is that like a study of it? Um, is that what that book is? Um, so, all right. A Nicaragua Against Empire uh, is a very good documentary made by my good friend Ramiro Funes uh, showing what the Sandinistas of Nicaragua have achieved for their country. Um, you know, just refuting the lies, you know, showing how much uh, they have worked to empower the indigenous people, how much they've done for the population in terms of creating economic opportunity, fomenting economic development, um, wiping out illiteracy, raising people out of poverty. Um, it's a great documentary. You should watch it. It's on Ramiro's channel. It's, it's really great. Um, all right. Good sources on the Italian partisans. Well, if you really want to learn about the Italian partisans, I would recommend there's a movie you can watch called Rome Open City. Uh, and it's about the, uh, you know, Italian partisan resistance uh, during the Second World War. Rome Open City. Uh, it's a, it's a pro-communist film uh, that was made by Hollywood uh, about the Italian uh, partisans. And that's what I would encourage you to check out if you want kind of a, an introductory source. Um, so there you go. Um, Steve Bannon seems to have disappeared. Well, Steve Bannon, uh, you know, he was considered the political guru uh, who is behind Donald Trump. Um, and he is a Pentagon person. He's very much tied to the Pentagon, uh, Pentagon strategist pushing a doctrine of economic nationalism. They tried to make him out like he was a neo-Nazi or a fascist. He's certainly a problematic person. He lies about China obsessively as an anti-communist, anti-Chinese fanatic. Um, I caught him just lying about China in a speech he gave um, where he, would, he said, you know, China announced that they won an economic war and that that's not true. Um, you know, he, he lies about China obsessively, but he seems to be more politically together, um, I would argue. You know, he's more of a coherent political strategist um, than, um, than, than many of the you know, the folks out there. He was kind of the guru behind Trump. He represents, you know, a faction that's tied to the Pentagon and that fight between the Pentagon and the CIA, lower level capitalists versus higher level. He's tied to the military industrial complex and he sees China as the enemy and fighting China as a way of making lots of money. And, you know, um, he's, you know, kind of recruiting lower level businessmen to his, you know, his message of kind of rebooting the U.S. economy with a military industrial complex uh, against China. Uh, you know, that's that's what he's about. Um, and he knew how to push the racist button, right? He kind of had studied the psychology of Rust Belt, Rust Belt boomers, right? And he knew how to push their buttons. He knew exactly how to push their buttons. Um, all kinds of personal information about him was revealed uh, during the elections, some of which was a little bit deceptive. Um, you know, I mean, when I think about the guy, I mean, you know, he kind of reminds me of, you know, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, you know, Navy veteran, Pentagon guy. But if you read about his personal life, his divorce, some of the stuff that happened with his daughter, some of the bigoted statements that are attributed to him, you know, he reminds me of, you know, there are there are individuals I've encountered in my life of his age group and his demographic, um, you know, that he reminds me there's probably quite a few uh, men of his age group, ex-military background, business community, a little bit wealthier. 
uh, a little bit wealthier, ex-military from that background who would make comments like that uh, in the privacy of their own homes. And we shouldn't really be shocked about it. Um, you know, I mean, look, I mean, it, I mean, it wasn't, con- it wasn't until very recently, um, you know, really 70s, 80s, 90s, it became to the point that there was kind of an, a universal understanding that being a racist was not, uh, who didn't grow up with that right? They never really agreed to that. There was kind of a feeling that, okay, that's a liberal thing or, okay, I'm not racist. I'm just, I just think, you know, people are different, blah, blah, blah. You know, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, people, especially in military circles, especially in kind of wealthier circles, there's a lot of kind of Southern good old boy types, you want to call them that, um, who just, you know, have bigoted attitudes, um, you know, and bigoted attitudes about women, bigoted attitudes about, about different ethnic groups and and such. And, uh, you know, a lot of these statements were attributed to him. And I don't find it shocking that he allegedly said all these things, uh, you know, and when they, a lot of the stuff came out about him, I, I find it very easy to believe. Um, and that's why he's not running for president. That's why he was Trump's strategist, right? He was a strategist. And that also, that's why, I mean, he was in touch. He knew how to appeal to kind of rust belt boomer voters, right? Your average, you know, kind of rust belt working class older white person, uh, this is how they feel. Uh, these are the feelings they kind of have. And Trump was able to kind of give voice to some of those feelings. And that a lot of Trump's um, more offensive, uh, but but careful quips uh, were, were thought up by Bannon. Uh, it was Bannon um, who had the idea, uh, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, for Trump to, you know, when he talked about, you know, uh, about crime, he said, bad hombres. Right. Um, which everybody knew was racist. Right. I mean, he, didn't, he, you know, bad hombres. He's using a Spanish word. So that's that's clearly he's it's a racialized thing. Right. I mean, he's not just saying bad people. He's saying there's a lot of bad hombres out there. Well, you know, that's Bannon. Right. Bannon kind of figured out the art of how do we say something that'll just make that'll make all the kind of racist older people laugh and love you but won't cause so much of a blowback among your political opponents that you won't, you know, you won't lose votes. Oh, Ernst Mandel. Okay. We'll talk about Ernst Mandel. Um, you know, um, and, um, you know, that, that was kind of Bannon. He was kind of the art of, of messaging, like how to, how to do the messaging. I believe if I'm not mistaken, Steve Bannon was the editor of, um, Breitbart, right? There was, there was Andrew Breitbart, who was kind of this right-wing guru who had a heart attack and died. And then Steve Bannon became the head of Breitbart News. Uh, and if you look at the kind of stuff they publish on Breitbart, it appeals to a certain, uh, it, it appeals to a certain, uh, you know, to a certain type of person. Um, and Steve Bannon knew very, very well how to appeal to those type of people, um, you know, and, and he had studied their psychology, almost like a marketing demographic. And that's, that's who Steve Bannon was. And, you know, he's largely disappeared because Trump has been defeated. And I would assume that, that it may also be because of January 6th um, and that, you know, that he was associated with the more, more radical wing of the Trump movement, right? You know, Mike Pompeo is still around. I mean, he's just a CIA neocon guy. He's associated with Trump, but he's not, you know, in that category. But whereas Steve Bannon is the kind of guy that probably is on friendly terms with a lot of with a lot of QAnon promoters and QAnon kind of people, um, you know. And I think, you know, in in light of January sixth and the events on January sixth, I think if I was Steve Bannon, I'd be keeping low. I'd be keeping my head low after that because, you know, I mean, you know, the social media and mobilizing all the people to get there. 
he probably doesn't want to get called before Congress. Um, you know, so there you go. Uh, why is there so little written on Operation Gladio? There's not. There's a lot written on Operation Gladio. There's whole books about it, documentaries about it. Um, Operation Gladio, because it was so long ago, uh, there's a lot more about it than there are about a lot of other, um, uh, you know, uh, other, other um, what do you call it, um, you know, CIA operations. There's a lot on Gladio. There's some documentaries. There's some, there's a lot on CIA Operation Gladio because it was so long ago. Um, and because at this point, I mean, they got what they wanted. The big thing about Operation Gladio, though, that no one talks about, right? It's, you know, people talk about the CIA funding uh, the, you know, the fascist groups that went around killing communists. That happened. Uh, people talk about the CIA giving guns and weapons to ultra-leftist organizations that engaged in assassinations and bombings that discredited the Italian Communist Party. Um, and all that happened, for sure. Um, there's the years of lead uh, that they had in Italy. Uh, that there were just, you know, communists and fascists killing each other in the streets and communist bombings and uh, fascist bombings and communist assassinations and fascist assassinations and ultra-left communists attacking the Italian Communist Party and and all kinds of crazy stuff was going on. And behind the scenes, the CIA uh, was was pulling, you know, was, was the puppeteer making all this craziness happen. Um, that's all been revealed. But ultimately, that's not what ultimately did in the Italian Communist Party. Really what happened was they bought off the Italian Communist Party. The Italian Communist Party was full of academics, right? You're a high-ranking Italian communist, uh, you know, give them a job as a college professor uh, and give them grant money to write books about communism and then nudge them to talk about communism in a certain way if they want to get that grant money. And that's ultimately what they did. In 1978, the Italian Communist Party and the, um, right, um, you, you know me, Park. Uh, um, the Italian Communist Party, the Spanish Communist Party, and the French Communist Party all denounced the Soviet Union. They became Euro-communists. Well, that was a result of decades of basically nudging, nudging through academia and, and through, you know, through various covert efforts, nudging communists uh, and, and, you know, to move in this more academic Frankfurt School, you know, Congress for Cultural Freedom direction. That's what I was talking about earlier with Pete Buttigieg's father, right? Um, you know, um, I heal political divide. Before, you know, that, that um, that's what I was talking about is that, you know, they, they kind of nudged the, the communist parties uh, in a number of directions and and euro communism was a result of of very you know it wasn't blowing up the communists it wasn't killing the communists it wasn't arming fascist groups it wasn't arming ultra left terrorist groups it was a result of just you know just putting enough money and crafting the narrative in a certain way uh, that uh, that these communist groups became less and less revolutionary um you know and and you know the communist party of italy coming out of world war ii they controlled whole regions because of their heroic anti-fascist work they dominated the labor movement they were they were a well-organized block of the population so it was a matter of giving giving prominent italian communist jobs in universities giving them grant money to write books and pushing pushing them to sound less and less revolutionary uh, and, and gradually, uh, there isn't even an Italian Communist Party anymore. Now it's called the Party of the Democratic Left. They're Social Democrats, and they're right-wing Social Democrats. They're, some of the some of the Trotskyites are more radical than they are. Right? The Italian Communist Party 
is no more. Uh, the French Communist Party still exists. Um, certainly, I mean, it supported the bombing of Libya, supported the bombing of Mali. Um, you know, it still exists. Um, but yeah, I mean, this, this is, it was a result, it was mainly the main way uh, to make sure the Italian Communist Party stopped being a threat was to buy it off. Uh, the bombings, the assassinations, that kind of stuff, it, it actually kind of made them stronger. Will the USA default on debt soon? I don't think it'll default on its debt. Um, you know, there was a situation during the Obama years where because of some of the Republican activities, the USA's credit rating increased. And we're, you know, there's a political fight going on over this infrastructure project, which is pretty awful. I mean, it privatizes huge chunks of the U.S. infrastructure. I mean, the Democrats' plan is pretty awful. Of course, the Republicans are declaring it to be full-on communism. This is just like the, the Obamacare situation. The Democrats are planning to do almost nothing, and the Republicans are declaring that this will be, you know, the transition to a, you know, a authoritarian, communist, fascist, Muslim regime or something. Um you know, and, uh, you know, and, and, and it's pretty awful, but, uh, there's going to be fighting over it and we may get another government shutdown. I kind of feel like there won't be at this point. I don't think there'll be a full government shutdown, but I don't think we're, we're not going to default on our debt. That's not going to happen. Uh, that wouldn't, that wouldn't be the, that would mean banks wouldn't get paid. And that's not what, you know, you know, politicians don't get funded and selected by big bankers to not pay, right? The USA may lose, you know, have a credit default and that may discredit, you know, Biden, and I think that, you know, Biden is under a lot of pressure. They really want to create a situation where Biden has to step down because that's the only way Kamala Harris can be president. It's the only way Kamala Harris can be president is if is if Biden, you know, is forced to step down. And people are talking about the Carter years and stagflation and all of that. And it may be that the only way to get Biden out is to create such an economic crisis in the country. Right. I mean, with Afghanistan, there's there's a whole lot of elements within the the deep state that are are maybe not thrilled with Trump, um, but they they don't want Biden. They want Kamala Harris. Um, and it may be that that they this is how desperate they are. We'll see how desperate they are to get Kamala Harris uh, into the presidency uh, because she won't be elected. Kamala Harris won't be elected. The only way to get Kamala Harris president would be to force Biden to step down. Um, and it seems like that's already in the works. And it's weird because I didn't vote for Biden. Uh, I'm very, you know, critical of Biden, but I'm in a situation where it's like, you know, I hate to, to put it this way, folks, and this is a really going to sound really weird coming from me. Enjoy Biden while he lasts. Enjoy Biden while he lasts. Uh, because right now, right? We're able to have these conversations. We're not having a big war and all of this. Biden, Biden is Biden, Biden, we're Biden our time with Biden, basically. Enjoy Biden while he lasts, right? Um, you know, it's going to, whatever comes after Biden at this point is going to be worse. Um, you know, uh, we, we get Trump back. Um, if we get Kamala Harris, whatever comes after Biden is going to be worse. So, Right now, we're in this, you know, truth and reconciliation, post-January 6th, post-pandemic. We're in this kind of like, you know, it's a lot like Jimmy Carter. You know, I know you're upset, folks. I know you're upset. We just had the 1960s presidency, and I am Jimmy Carter. I mean, it's like Biden is there to be the truth and reconciliation guy, basically. He's there to, you know, you know, make the USA, everything's not so scary, put a mask on. Um, you know, and he's there to just kind of calm us all down and get us all together. So then they can sink the knife in. Um, and I think, you know, I think that right now, uh, the political climate in the country is bad. Um, but Biden is kind of doing a holding action. He's just there kind of tap dancing and trying to hold things together. 
the he's not the one to sink the knife in. There are various factions uh, that have knives right now. Uh, the pro the the Trump faction have knives. The Kamala Harris faction has knives. Uh, you know, the, the neocons have their knives, but but you know, but Biden doesn't have any knives. He's not trying to stick a knife in us. He's just trying to calm us down, right? While while the other folks get their knives out, um, it's hard to explain it that way. But enjoy Biden while he lasts. Enjoy Biden while he lasts. Um, so there you go. Um, uh, Cabo Verde loves me. Well, there you go. Alex Saab should be free. Uh, the USA has absolutely no jurisdiction to hold Alex Saab. Um, and Cabo Verde participating with the U.S. imperialists. Um, yeah. Um, you know, I mean, so, yeah, I mean, I, I'm for freeing Alex Saab. I interviewed, uh, I interviewed Alex Saab's attorney, uh, who was also, uh, the attorney of, um, of Chelsea Manning. Um, and, you know, I, there was a demonstration at the, uh, Cabo Verde UN mission that the John Brown volunteers were at. I was there as well. Um, yeah, I mean, the USA has absolutely no grounds to hold Alex Saab. So yeah, free Alex Saab. And we got to raise awareness about this case. Free Alex Saab. Alex, S-A-A-B. Uh, the USA, basically, he was in Venezuela. He's a Venezuelan diplomat. And he was going to Iran to arrange for Iran to give food to Venezuela. And the USA doesn't like that because no one's allowed to feed Venezuelans. No one's allowed to do business with Iran because the USA hates them both. So they held him in Cabo Verde and now they're extraditing him to the United States. It's kidnapping. It's completely, completely unjustified. Thank you for the super chat. And we need to raise awareness about the case of Alex Saab. It's a very important case. No one's talking about it. There's been a mainstream media blackout. They just had an article about it in Forbes. Um, so we need to raise awareness about it. There you go. That's enough said. How is settler defined in modern America? I don't even know. I don't use the term settler to describe people. Um, you know, I use the term worker, capitalist, you know, we, we can talk about labor aristocracy. Uh, you know, we can talk about, about racism and national oppression and stuff, but I don't go around calling people settlers. I just, I don't, I don't see that as productive. Um, how is, how is, um, oh, oh, the next question is the Pandora Papers. Well, I talked about that at the beginning, you know, big blank spot, right? So many U.S. billionaires have avoided paying taxes and all of this, but yet where are they? I mean, you know, it was pretty clear. Look, I, I'm convinced what happened is this after WikiLeaks, uh, U.S. intelligence sat down and they said, okay, we got to all of our secrets are out there. Well, we got to be able to, we got to dig up a bunch of secrets on a bunch of other people. And, you know, you know, and so they came up with the Panama Papers and it was to embarrass various leaders around the world that they accuse of corruption, et cetera, and, and, and all of that. And now it seems Pandora Papers are like the follow-up of the Panama Papers, much bigger. And, you know, it's, you know, and, and here's the thing, here's the, the thing about all of this, right? You know, this is a, a trick they used to do against the old Soviet Union, right? And, and this is a very important point to make, right? Is they would look at the Soviet Union and they would say, okay, you know, the Soviet Union is supposed to be a communist society, but the guy who's the head of the state-run steel industry, he gets paid a hundred times what the average worker makes and he drives a fancy car. So therefore it's not really communist and it's phony. Um, and that is kind of not getting at the essence of what communism and socialism are. And it's, it's really obscuring the difference between a bureaucracy and a class. And I've talked about this a lot, and it's a very important point that, meant, that needs to be made. In a socialist society, 
especially when you're building socialism on the basis of scarcity, you're going to have to have a bureaucracy, right? Uh, when there's not enough to go around, you're going to have to ration what goes around, right? If there's not enough food to go around, in order to make sure everyone gets some food, you're going to have to divide up the food and ration it. But in order to enforce that rationing and make sure that, you know, that not everybody, um, you know, that, that one person doesn't steal other people's ration or doesn't steal other people's piece of bread, you're going to have to have a guard. But that guard is going to demand a bigger piece of bread for taking on the responsibility. He could just be like everybody else, but he's taking on the responsibility of, of being the guard. So he's going to want a bigger piece of bread. And that's the basis of bureaucracy. You know, the bureaucrat is getting, is, is you know, getting from the same as everybody else, right? It's, it's, you know, he's getting a chunk out of the same, you know, out of the same pie as everybody else, but he gets a bigger chunk because he's taking on the responsibility of being the bureaucrat and, in, and being the enforcer, basically. Um, uh, it's kind of like labor unions. A labor union bureaucracy is a great example. Those labor union leaders, right? The head of the AFL-CIO, you think those people are poor? No, 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 no. I mean, they're driving fancy cars. They're wearing suits and ties and, you know, and they're, you know, going on vacation in fancy places. And they're, you know, think the head of the UAW is poor? No. Do you think the head of the... Um, of the uh, of the AFL CIO, you think Richard Trumpka? You know, think you think he was poor? You think he lived in poverty? No. Um, so you know, they point to that and they say, "Oh, see, labor unions. There's no difference between labor unions and big corporations." Well, there's a very big difference between labor unions and corporations, which is it is in the interest of the labor union for your wages to go up. Right? The labor union, the higher you get paid, the more people that are in the union, the more their wages go up, the the more the union gets stronger. Whereas it is in the interest of your boss to pay you as little as he possibly can and drive your wages down, right? Your boss is exploiting your labor and trying to get as most as much out of you as he possibly can, uh, you know, for as little possible, uh, right? The, the capitalist wants to make you poorer. The labor bureaucrat wants to make you wealthier. And that's the difference between a bureaucrat, like, you know, yes, in the Soviet Union, in Cuba today, you know, leaders of the Communist Party live pretty well compared to average people. But there's a difference, which is the better average people in Cuba live, the better they live. Whereas if it was a capitalist, the capitalist lives at the expense of average people, right? That you share a common interest with a bureaucracy, Whereas you don't share a common interest with a capitalist. A capitalist lives at your expense and is trying to make you poorer and is trying to drive down the wages of the worker. A labor union bureaucrat or the leader of a socialist government, a socialist bureaucrat, is trying to see your living standard increase, right? Um, and the, the, the basis of bureaucracy existing is scarcity, right? When there is limited limited supply, somebody has to decide how it's distributed. If you're not going to have the free market decide how to do it, you have to have somebody decide how to do it. And that person has to have some enforcement power. You know, um, you know, I mean, one of the saddest stories that I've seen, but it also kind of is a great example of this is, is Rhodesia, now Zimbabwe, right? Zimbabwe, uh, you know, it overthrew the colonial apartheid settler regime of, of Rhodesia. That was a great victory. But you have to remember that, uh, you know, under the old apartheid settler regime of Rhodesia, many black people didn't even get education. They, many black people were not provided with basic education, with basic literacy. Um, and many of the people in Rhodesia, um, you know, that, that could do, you know, accounting and, you know, and, and could be bureaucrats were white. And so even after the overthrow of the, of the apartheid 
Rhodesian government um, and the setting up of Zimbabwe, the revolutionary, you know, anti-colonial state based on black liberation led by Robert Mugabe. The majority of the government bureaucracy were still white people. And why was that? Because again, and and do you think those white people that were, you know, I mean, many of them were going to demand, oh, wow, okay. You know, we used to have supremacy here. We used to be the, you know, the, own all, the whole country. Um, and now uh, we don't. And on top, but, and, but you still need us to, you know, be the accountants and be the lawyers and all that. They're going to demand a lot of money out of the, the Zimbabwe government. Right, and that's the problem of bureaucracy. And you have to have somebody to administer the state. Does this mean that bureaucracy actually actually wanting to abolish itself rather than expand as conservatives charge? Well, in a socialist society, right, the need for bureaucracy fades away as there is more and more abundance, right? Um, and that's you know, in a capitalist society, capitalist bureaucracy is an attempt is an attempt by the ruling class to stabilize their own system. That's what the Federal Reserve is. Under capitalism, and it's, you know, you have more bureaucracy, which is more of an attempt to stabilize it. You have more of a free market approach. That's under capitalism. Under socialism, bureaucracy, um, bureaucracy is necessary to regulate until, you know, and, and, and until the level of abundance exists uh, that you can eventually have no state, right? And that the idea is that as socialist production expands, as it exceeds capitalist production, as inequality fades away, the need for a bureaucracy in a state will also fade away. But bureaucracy is based on the material conditions. And especially these countries that are building socialism in a state of extreme scarcity, they're going to have a bureaucracy. And that bureaucracy uh, is going to demand. Look, we're you know we're taking on the responsibility of of being the heads of the government. We're going to want to make sure our relatives are taken care of. We're going to make and and that's what what a lot of people don't you know they want to moralize it. And that's one of the problems is they look at the Soviet Union like oh the Soviet Union wants to have communism, but you know the people that worked in Stalin's inner circle they all had fancy cars, and the people in Siberia who worked you know, who worked in agriculture, you know, they didn't have cars. So therefore, and it's like, no, no. In order to have people that could be the bureaucrats in Stalin's inner circle, they needed to be qualified. And in order to get those folks to do that job, uh, they had to be compensated for it. But those folks, their material interest was making the Soviet Union as prosperous as possible. The richer those folks in Siberia got, the richer those bureaucrats, you know, in Stalin's inner circle got. And it's a different kind of relationship. A bureaucrat, there's a lot of corruption and nepotism with bureaucracy, but it's different than capitalism, where the capitalist, you know, is trying to make the employee as poor as he possibly can. That is not what the bureaucrat wants to do. And, you know, and you know who wrote a lot about this question was Trotsky, of all people. I mean, and that's why I recommend, I don't agree with Trotsky on many, many things, but if you want kind of an analysis of why a bureaucracy is not a class where bureaucracy comes from, go and read Trotsky's book, The Revolution Betrayed. Trotsky has pages and pages and pages about why the Soviet Union was not capitalist. You know, he didn't agree with the Soviet Union, but he argued that the existence of bureaucracy did not make the Soviet Union capitalist. And he was right about that, right? Bureaucracy is, is something, in, you know, that revolutions have to have. The question is, how do you control the bureaucracy? And that's been the question that has haunted 20th century communism. Um, and I think that ultimately market socialism proves much more effective in managing bureaucracy. Um, and that's a whole nother conversation. But uh, but yeah, and that a lot of what these Pandora papers are about is that various anti-imperialist states have bureaucracy. And that's supposed to discredit it, right? That's supposed to prove that, oh, they, they're not really socialist because they have bureaucracy. Oh, okay. Right? As if the capitalists, as if Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates and 
you know, and all of that. But but it's it's like it's supposed to be worse because these are people preaching anti-imperialism, preaching socialism, but they take care of their relatives and they live in splendor. Well, you know, it's not that simple, right? You know, again, you know, uh, it, these are countries rising up out of poverty. These people, you know, you have to build up a bureaucracy if you're going to be able to fight off the imperialists. You have to have an apparatus that is prepared to face off with the imperialists. And in a country where corruption, in developing countries, look, corruption is a way of life. And a lot of people don't seem to realize that. But in societies where so many people are without and where societies where people are, are hungry uh, and, and desperate, uh, corruption becomes a way of life, right? That if you're not corrupt, uh, you know, I mean, if you get a government job, everyone in your apartment building is going to want some you know, to fix their tickets or something like that, right? And that these things go on. There's a lot more corruption in societies where people are deeply poor, right? Uh, you know, we don't bribe police here in the United States, right? You try to bribe a cop, you're going to lose your money. He's going to take your money, and then you're going to go to jail for trying to give a bribe to a cop. But in a lot of developing countries, when the police pull you over, they expect a bribe. And if they don't get a bribe, they'll beat the crap out of you. Um, you know, well, that is a problem rooted in poverty. That is what you have uh, when, you know, you have societies where people are desperately poor. You have things like that. Um, and the USA is becoming more and more like that um, every day. Uh, but, you know, but part of our growing up in the absence of a lot of the visible corruption you see in the developing world is really privilege. Uh, you know, I mean, if you know, and it's it's really privilege that and, and the USA, like I said, was civil asset forfeiture where, you know, the cops stop you and they just seize your money for no reason. And, you know, I mean, civil asset forfeiture, there's a lot more of this stuff that is happening. Um, but there you go. There you go. There you go. All right. Um uh, China and Vietnam, communist parties, what's the relationship? Well, China and Vietnam have a very ugly history. China invaded Vietnam in 1978. But going back thousands of years, you know, you know, the Chinese have, have conquered Vietnam and committed horrendous atrocities against the Vietnamese people. Various dynasties have done that. Um, you know, and then, you know, there was the Sino-Soviet split and the, the Kampuchea War where, the, where China supported Pol Pot against against Vietnam. And, and there's a lot of ugly history there. Right now, the USA very much wants to use Vietnam as an ally against China. But many Vietnamese communists realize that's not going to work and realize that, you know, the USA killed millions of Vietnamese people. They don't want to be used. But there are also many, many Vietnamese people who have the opposite view and say, look, you know, we fought with the USA a long time ago. There's a lot of American companies who invest over here. But China is our longtime enemy. And there is division about that within the Vietnamese Communist Party. Um, there's a lot of division over that point, right? And that, you know, Vietnam kind of zigs and zags. Sometimes it seems like Vietnam is going into the U.S. camp. And sometimes it seems like Vietnam is going into the, into the you know, is getting friendlier to China. Vietnam and China, I don't think they're in any time in the near future going to just be best friends forever. Everything that's gone on between those two peoples, especially the Kampuchea War, I, you know, there's some disputed islands also that, you know, Vietnam, you know, the China has claimed some islands that Vietnam says are their islands. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of difference there. But the question is, is the Vietnamese Communist Party are they, do they feel that China is the main problem or the USA is the main problem? And that's why as much as Luna, I don't know what, what her issue is, but um, as much as Luna, you know, whatever, the fact that she's talking so strongly against US imperialism and she's putting up the flag of the United States and saying this is a flag of genocide and all that, for her to say that in Vietnam is very good. It's very, very good because that is an answer to people in Vietnam that are trying to... Um, trying to say, oh, the USA isn't so bad, it's China is the one we should hate. So for her to be in Vietnam, 
focusing on the U.S. imperialists as the main danger, uh, that's a good thing on her part. Um, you know, uh, so there you go. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, if, I mean that, you know, in, in the situation that she's in, I think it's a good thing to do. I don't think she understands those of us who are here in the United States trying to organize and build a, a working class movement and educate people about socialism, the Center for Political Innovation. And she doesn't understand that at all. Right. Uh, she's got her anarchist boyfriend and they're making videos about worker co-ops and all. And that's OK. That's not her job. Right. She's Vietnamese and she's she's there trying to help her country uh, fight against U.S. imperialism, raise its people out of poverty. And she she's not in our situation. Right. She doesn't understand uh, our situation. Right. Um, now, her anarchist boyfriend certainly doesn't. But, you know, uh, her husband, I guess they're married, I believe. But, you know, I, that's OK. I don't expect her to understand that situation. And I, I would never condemn her for burning the American flag, a Vietnamese person. You know, how many millions of Vietnamese people were killed by the United States? Of course they can burn the American flag. Uh, you know, I mean, I mean, you know, she Luna is not Luna is not, you know, Jason on Ruhe. OK, Luna is a Vietnamese person in a socialist country. Uh, and there is big debate in that socialist country about whether they should reconcile with the imperialists to fight China. And so what she's saying in the context that she's saying it for who she is, number one, and the country she's in is actually OK. I think it's fine what she's saying. I don't know what her issue is with me, and she can email me anytime, uh, you know, about whatever her issue is. I don't know what her issue is with me. I do know that she and her boyfriend have also faced a huge amount of harassment uh, lately. I believe there was somebody who was imitating her or something like that on social media or imitating her boyfriend or something like that. So they've been facing a lot of harassment and who knows, uh, who knows, but, you know, where she is, um, you know, the context uh, of everything, who she is, eh, everything she does makes sense. I, I have no problem with her doing what she does. All right. So next question. Uh, Ernst Mandel. Um, Ernst Mandel was a Trotskyite economist uh, in the post-World War II years. Um, I believe, um, you know, I, he was he was in France, but then he like fled France to, you know, when the Nazis took over France um, and, you know, he's a Trotskyite, um, and, uh, he wrote a lot of Marxian e economics, right? About capital and such. Um, and some of it's good. If you want a good introduction to Marxist economics, you can read Ernst Mandel. Um, you know, and he was, he was one of those Trotskyites who tried to position himself, um, tried to position himself as kind of aligning with the third world anti-imperialist liberation struggles. Um, there's actually like some, and thank you, Herb Bryant, for the super chat. There's actually some very good documentaries you can watch about Ernst Mandel. Um, you know, I mean, I believe, you know, he he encouraged people at the anti-war rallies to chant, Che, Che, Che Guevara, ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh. Che, Che, Che Guevara, ho, ho, Ho Chi Minh. Um, you know, um, and... Uh, you know, and that he was, you know, he was trying to position the Trotskyites of Europe to be more radical than the communist parties, but to support the Vietnamese and to support Cuba and such. Um, I think he was generally not very good on situations like Czechoslovakia and all that, but he was an economist and he talked about the development of the capitalist economy. He kind of gives, his books are introductory if you want to understand Marxist economics. He's a Trotskyite academic that I think you can learn from. You can learn from Ernst Mandel's writing, I think, overall. I think you can learn from him. Ernst Mandel, uh, he's, he's a Marxist econ economist that you can learn from. Um, you know me, Park. Right? I mean, she claims in North Korea they have to push the trains, right? That's the thing. They don't have electricity in North Korea for their trains, so you have to push them 
I mean, this is just, you know, this is, come on. But then she also claims that college campuses in the United States, because of the political correctness, are worse than North Korea. So that's the case. Um, you know, well, I mean, I mean, it's you can't take her seriously. I mean, what's she saying this week? I mean, it's just between the claims that she makes that are so ridiculous sometimes about North Korea, and then suddenly she's claiming things are worse in the United States. It's like, how does anyone take this woman seriously? I mean, I, I'm sorry, you know, so it's like North Korea is so bad, anyone who disagrees with the government gets shot and they put you in a labor camp for three generations and it's so awful. But then on top of that, uh, on top of that, it's worse on, it's worse at Harvard, it's worse at Columbia University. Give me a break. I mean, how do people take this person seriously? This is just silliness. And it's like, she's making a farce out of, but watch the Korean Peninsula because stuff is already starting to happen there. I told you stuff was starting to happen there. I told you about Trump. And, you know, what was going on with the Unification Church and, and stuff is happening there. Keep your eye on the Korean Peninsula. Something's happening there. Something's happening there. It's already starting to heat up a little bit. We're going to be talking North Korea a lot in the next couple months. I, that's the way it looks. You know, just keep your eye on the Korean Peninsula. I told you, I told you, you know, two, two three weeks ago, I said, watch the Korean Peninsula. And... Already, they're testing missiles. Something's happening. There's been back-channel communication going on. The Biden administration is trying to continue, it looks like, the Trump negotiations to some degree or other. Some stuff is going to happen on the Korean Peninsula. You just keep watching. Keep watching. Uh, do we have to heal the political divide before revolution can occur? Well, politics has got to shift. That's pretty clear. I mean, the woke wokeness versus Trumpism is not going to lead to socialist revolution in the United States. There needs to be a repolarization around class struggle, around a real program. Um, that's pretty clear. I, I mean, there needs to be a shift. It may just be generational, ultimately. I think that a lot of what's going on now, I mean, I don't think you're, you, you wouldn't be able to have like a Trump movement among younger folks, right? Conservatism is gonna change. It's already changing. I mean, the reason that, that Trump has come in is because conservatism has changed so much, but conservatism is gonna keep changing. Uh, conservatism in the United States is is definitely not gonna be the, what it once was. And the woke stuff, people are already getting sick of that, the woke stuff. People are getting sick and tired of wokeness. Um, so that's gonna change also. So um, there you go. Um, I think generationally things will change, but ultimately, you know, that's what communist groups do is you put forward your program. You put forward your program right? That is your responsibility. You put forward your program, right? That's what we do at the Center for Political Innovation. We put forward our program. Um, you know, we put forward our political uh, and economic program and we, you know, we, we raise demands that change the nature of society, right? That's our four-point program, uh, mass mobilization to rebuild the country, uh, you know, public control of natural resources, uh, public control of banking and an economic bill of rights. Uh, that program you know, and, and the Sandino Zapata Economic Corridor and Fusion City, uh, that program, uh, that's that's how you organize people, is you put forward a program and you mobilize people around that program. That is the basis on which the revolutionary movement expands, on the basis of its program. The Communist Manifesto, Karl Marx says, communists support every uprising against the existing order of things, but in all of them, they bring forth the property question, right? That's what we got to do. Whenever there's people that are at odds with the system, we go to them and we support them, but we bring forth the property question. That is our responsibility. Thank you, folks. Um, I appreciate it. I've got a little bit of a headache. Uh, you know, it's fall allergies. It's been a little bit of a long day, um, but uh, you know, I thank you for all that you do. We're a great community. I'm sure I'll be back. I'll probably be back on tomorrow. 
if I'm not mistaken. I think I'm going to be streaming tomorrow. Uh, so uh, let's talk again soon. A new upsurge in the struggle against U.S. imperialism is now emerging throughout the world. Ever since World War II, U.S. imperialism and its followers have been continuously launching wars of aggression. But the people of various countries have been continuously waging revolutionary wars to defeat their aggression. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. While the danger of a new world war still exists and the people of all countries must get prepared, revolution is the main trend in the world today. Good night.